The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are we doing? The windows are open. The sun is shining. Come on. Spring, I think, has sprung. We should be doing a little better than that, right? Um, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City. I want to welcome you. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. So I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into it this morning. And if you didn't get nervous during the uh, reading of Scripture, I'm sure the nerves will start building. Here we go. <clears throat> Father, you are a good God. You are a good, good dad to your, your people. And we thank you for all the work that you've done for us. We thank you for your grace given to us. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word that we don't have to guess what you're like. We don't have to bump around in the dark trying to figure out what you're like and what do you do and how should we live and who are we, but we can actually go to your word the Bible that's been revealed from heaven to us through men who are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we, we thank you for this word that we can come under it this morning. We can learn from it. We can study. Um, we can not, not try to shape it, but let it shape us. So I ask that, that even as I preach the word today, that your Holy Spirit would shape us, shape our minds, shape our hearts, shape our affections, and then change our behavior because of it. We ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. As I'm praying that, I'm thinking about um, there's really two ways to shape people's behavior or there's two ways to teach people. Uh, maybe you've heard this. This is pretty common. You can give people a list of things to do, right? You can tell them what to think. You can tell them what to do. Uh, you can just kind of give a and, and, and immature people can follow that list, right, for a little while. Or you can really train someone on how to think. And then that can actually enable them, no matter what kind of situation comes up, they can actually think differently and then engage the situation in a different manner. And that's what that's why Paul really approaches um, all of our, all of the behavioral problems in the church in Corinth. He doesn't just tell them what to do, right? He tells them how to think. 
And that's what I'm trying to do on a week-in, week-in basis is try to teach us how to think Christianly or how to think in, in line with the gospel, right? Not just sex is good or sex is bad because that's where we're going today, right? But why? How do I think Christianly about the topic of sex? And honestly, that should play out in every area of our life. How should I think Christianly or how does the gospel inform the way I parent and the way I uh, talk to my neighbor and the way that I lead my business? No matter if you're in fashion, right, or Wall Street, the gospel should be infecting and affecting the way you live your life. So Paul's going to come at this today. He's going to basically talk about two main things, the way you view your body and the way you view sex. And from my perspective, I think there's two predominant views regarding sex in our culture today. They've both been around for a really long time. And what we're going to see over the next two weeks is that these two views are already dominating the cultural climate in the ancient city of Corinth. And these two views are really opposed to one another. They are opposite ends of a spectrum. And what that happens is, so whatever view you hold, it puts the adherence to those views at, at opposition to each other. They're really at war with one another. If you hold this view, you're at war with the people that hold this view. I think you might recognize them as we begin to talk about them, but there seems to be a war in our culture, and even in the culture of Corinth, a war over sex that is being waged primarily between the prudes and the pagans. The prudes and the pagans. Now, of course, that's an oversimplification but if you can bear with me for a little while, you might actually agree with me on this. We're going to see it today as we see it in Corinth. That there's two views on sex. The prudes, the prudes and the pagans, all right? The prudes, they are the traditionalists. They say things like sex is only for procreation. And most of the time they promote a view of sex that is at the most utilitarian and dirty. They treat sex like it's a necessary evil. If you grew up in a really strict conservative home, you might have heard hundreds of times how dangerous and damaging sex outside of marriage can be. Or maybe just sex is. Most of the time, this is a lecture given by parents or youth pastors to keep them from having premarital sex. But oftentimes it comes out sounding like this. Sex is bad. Sex is gross. You might get an STD or pregnant. So stuff your desires. Don't do it. It's bad. It's dirty. So save it for the one you marry. Right? This leads to a really destructive understanding of sex. And I've counseled many people who are raised in this type of environment who could never come to see sex in a different light. And it brought a lot of damage to their marriage. They couldn't understand how they could go from sex is bad and sex is dirty and sex is wrong and don't, 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 till all of a sudden after the marriage, you know, honeymoon, they're supposed to flip a switch, right? And then just love it, right? Or just make, it, make a big deal out of it. They couldn't do it and it caused a lot of damage to their marriage. 
But honestly, what happens most of the time when parents or pastors take this prudish approach to sex when talking with their kids and church members is that their followers just see them as regressive, see them as prude, see them out of touch with reality. So they ignore their advice. And what do they do? They change sides, right? They go from prude to a pagan. They say the prudes are boring. At least the pagans are having some fun, right? So let's try out this pagan view. Now listen, I call them pagans. We don't use that word very often. You might conjure up ideas of witchcraft. Maybe people use that when they talk about Harry Potter, but I think the way we view sex is way more pagan than Harry Potter. I'm calling them pagans because this is basically hedonism. What's hedonism? Hedonism is YOLO. All right? Hedonism is you only live once, right? So get it in while you can get it in. It is whatever, whatever gives you happiness, whatever makes you happy, pursue it. Go after it. If it feels good, do it. That's hedonism. That's paganism. The pagan viewpoint of sex is that it's just a desire that is meant to be filled in whatever way you see fit. If my sex drive is just a result of evolution, then it's no different than my desire to eat. The Corinthians actually had their own statement about this. They would say, food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for food. When you feel hungry, what do you do? You eat. That's why food exists, to fill our stomachs when we get hungry. Well, their thinking thinking went along these same pathways when they thought about sex. When you have the desire... When you have a craving, you fulfill that desire. It's as simple as that. I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm feeling sexy, I sex. So the prudes say, when you have sexual desires, you need to stuff them. Prudes, stuff them. Put a cap on it. Take a cold shower. Just don't do it. Sex is bad. But the pagans respond in the opposite. They say, when you have a sexual desire, go with it. Give in to it. If it feels good, do it. It's your body, girl. You can do what you want to. To a pagan, sex is basically God. It's where a person finds their meaning and happiness. In our culture, if you haven't realized... People don't think you can be a fulfilled human being without fulfilling your sexual desires. And what Paul does is Paul steps into the fray here. He steps into the war between the prudes and the pagans. And he delivers another counterintuitive blow that should send us reeling like it does the first century Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 11, or verse 12, I'm sorry. All things are lawful for me. What? Now, more than likely, this is a statement, and this is definitely a statement Paul's used in the past, but there's also a statement that the Corinthians have probably adopted, because what we're going to find out is these Corinthians, some of the men, there was a huge process, or a huge uh, shrine to Aphrodite, Greek goddess, right? And they would, there was shrine prostitutes. The prostitutes would come down in the city, and the men were going out with prostitutes, all right? That's just bottom line. But um, 
we can kind of think of prostitution as a, in a different sense. Um, in, the, in this time, there was only the tradition, there was really the traditional view of marriage, and that was a man and a, a man and a, a, one man and one woman. And if you were single, you were a prostitute. If you were single and you weren't married, you really were a prostitute. People got married at a really, really young age. So this is talking about more than just prostitution, but sex outside of a traditional form of marriage. What Paul says here, though, he, he kind of, so th- these, these Corinthians were saying, Paul says we're not under the law anymore. Paul says that we have freedom now, so let's just go have sex with whoever we want to. Let's go sex, have sex with prostitutes and outside of marriage and do whatever we want to do. And Paul starts off, now listen, Paul starts off by reiterating and requoting what they already, what he's already taught them. It is true that all things are lawful. It is, it is true that the law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. See, Paul is not responding in a traditional or prudish sense, but neither is he responding in a pagan or a liberal sense. He says, all things are lawful. Indeed, the life of the Christian is marked by freedom. We're not enslaved. We're not in bondage. We're not under a law. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus Christ has set us free from every other master, every other thing in the universe that would try to manipulate us and control us. We've been set free from in Christ, by Christ. We've been set free for freedom. But lest you begin to think like the Corinthians here, that you can use your freedom now as an excuse to throw off all restraint. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Indeed, he says, I will not be mastered or dominated or enslaved by anything. See, the prude, the prude are enslaved to rules. They spend much of their life worrying about what their neighbors or other church folk may think of them. What would the board of directors do if they found out I was looking at pornography or I was having an affair? Their primary motivation, see the prude, their primary motivation is not the glory of God. Their primary motivation is self. The primary primary motivation is their own pride, is their own ego is their own sense of self. They're slaves to their own egos and reputations. So they might look a little more moral, but really they're still just enslaved to their own desires. Their desire for power, their desire for reputation, their desire for elevation in the eyes of other people. They're still enslaved. But the pagans, see, they're they're enslaved too. Now, pagans on this side of the spectrum, they think that they're more free than the prude. Pagans look at the prude and they go, man, those guys are just so sexually repressed. Wake up. It's 2014. Sex is fun. Live a little. Get out there and experiment. But what they don't realize is that they're enslaved as well. They're slaves to their own lusts. See, their sexual cravings are their master. They could never be happy without fulfilling them. They can't repress anything. They can't hold anything back. They have to be expressed. 
So that means if they're in a relationship and they have a sexual desire for someone else, that their, sexual, their sexuality can't be restrained. It's got to be unleashed. So they can never really have a happy life or a happy marriage or be in a relationship with someone because as soon as their sexual craving tells them there's somebody better looking, there's somebody easier, there's somebody different, their sexuality forces them in a sense, they're a slave to their sexual craving, that they can never be monogamous. So what Paul is saying here, and this is what should be shocking to us, is that they're both wrong. The prudes and the pagans are wrong. Both actually do two things. Number one, they actually undervalue the true nature of the body, and therefore they miss out on what sex, is, what sex really is and what sex is really meant for. So look how Paul addresses this situation. Once again, he doesn't give rules, just strict rules. He gives theology. He, he's, a, he's trying to change the way they think. Not just what they think, the way they think. He's addressing behavioral issues. We talk about human personhood as head, heart, and hands. The way we think, what we feel, what we love, our affections, and then our wills, what we choose to do. Paul doesn't just go right for their wills. He, cha- he goes for their mind. He wants their mind to affect their heart and their heart affect their behavior. So look what he does here. Paul is about to give us what many people call a theology of the body. A theology of the body. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. Look, the body is not meant... For sexual morality, but look at this, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, there's much confusion in the church and in our world today over our bodies, and that usually contributes to our dysfunctions when it comes to sex. How do we view our body? Basically, I'm just going to oversimplify things again, right? There is, uh, stemming back, all the way back to Plato, not the stuff you play with, you know, right? a philosopher, there is this platonic understanding of the body. Have you ever heard of a platonic relationship, right? What does that mean? That means, I was going to say something funny, but I, I filtered it before I said it. It means a boring relationship. No, it means a sexless relationship, right? That's what a platonic relationship means. See, Plato had this view that the body was somehow less good or evil or bad and the spirit or the soul or heaven or what's out there was good, right? So it, it, it infiltri- kind of affected the early church, especially these, the Greeks here. It affected their understanding. The Gnostics, affect this kind of, the flesh is somehow corrupted and bad and the spirit is somehow good. So our bodies are just something that we should shed and we get rid of. And the true personhood, who we really are, is somewhere, you know, in our soul or in our heart. That's the first view. And I think that still affects us today. If you grew up thinking the body's bad, and I can't wait for heaven where I just get to shed this body and float around like some kind of energy somewhere, right? There's going to be a spirit somewhere. Not you read your Bible, you're not, right? So we grow up with this view like the 
body is bad and somehow the spirit is good. That's from a platonic understanding of personhood. And then there's this, the second one that's pretty prevalent today. This kind of stems from evolutionary thinking, evolutionary humanism. And it basically says, if I really put it bluntly, that we're just blood sacks, right? Marching around with no purpose whatsoever. We just have desires and then just we're hunks of flesh, so we just have desires and we just fulfill those desires. Our cravings give us, if they have any meaning, our meaning comes kind of from our cravings. We just meant to fulfill whatever desires we may have. That there is no spirit. There is no soul. Therefore, we must seize the day and we must live for this moment that we're in. If you want to be truly happy, listen, listen to this. If you want to be truly happy in this life, you have to be having a lot of sex. I think that's the predominant view in our culture. We've got the prudes that are coming from a platonic understanding, not from a biblical understanding, that the spirit is good and the body is somehow bad. And then you've got a pagan understanding that's coming from you know, secular humanism and, and evolutionary thinking that's saying, hey, we're just meat. We just have desires. We just have cravings. And all meaning is found in fulfilling those cravings. So when you're hungry, you eat. When you're sexy, you sex. Right? That's what it means. But Paul is showing us a different way here. It's not the prude nor the pagan. And what it does is it stems from, not the culture, it stems from a God-centered view of the body and a huge understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13, the last half of that. The body is not meant for sexual morality. And that sexual morality, that word in the Greek, is pornea. Sound familiar? Pornea. Right? We, we base you know, our understanding of pornography off of that term, sexual immorality. Pornography, America's favorite pastime. More money is sp spent on pornography than the combined revenue of the NHL, NFL, and Major League Baseball. Combined more money spent on pornography. Now, this is huge here. Paul is trying to show us that God made us, what God made us for. And as any good craftsman would tell you, when you create something, as a craftsman, you create something and you know its purposes. My grandpa made a huge like toy box for me when I was a child. If you look at it, it just looks like a big, large box. But if you walk up to it and you lift the lid and it's hinged, right? It comes up, you, can re you realize that this huge box was actually made for something. It was actually made for a spoiled kid, right? That's what it was made. It was made to house. I was the firstborn. I had two years of wonderful bliss, right? Without any... It's complete solidarity. So I, you'd open this thing up and then what's it made for? It's made to house toys, it's made to place things inside of. He just didn't build it as, for a coffee table. Now, he could have used it as a coffee table, right? But that's not what it was built for. It was built to hold all of my toys, right? Now, what Paul is saying here is in creation, God has built us in such a way that, listen to this. God has built human beings in such a way that he can actually inhabit them. 
He can lift the lid and climb inside of them and somehow be united to them, somehow dwell in them. He made us so that he could actually come and move into us, penetrate us, and our bodies become a place where he can dwell. That's why Paul says in verse 19 that our body is actually a temple for the Holy Spirit. A temple is a place that God can dwell. That's why we see in the beginning in creation, God makes man out of dirt. Right? He makes man out of dirt, and then what's God do? Stand the dirt up, smack it on the butt, say, go ahead, boy. No. What does God do? God breathes into that dirt man to make him a living man. And what people, some, some people kind of deduct from that is that, oh, that means, that means the spirit is life. Well, the spirit gives life, but he has a body. It's not like that person existed somewhere down in God's lungs, if God had lungs, right? And he, can't, he like vomited him out into a person. The spirit is not the person. There's a, there's a unity there. When the spirit unites with the dirt, when the spirit unites with the flesh, human personhood happens. We're not spirits that just kind of have bodies. We are embodied persons. You can't separate the spirit from the soul, from the body. We're embodied. Now, I hope that you can see I'm building up here. I hope that you can see, listen, this is far from a platonic understanding of the body. This is far from prudish. God made our physical bodies for himself. That's why we, we read that Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is our, ah, shoot, our only comfort in life and death. There it is. What is our only comfort in life and death? We are not our own, but have been bought body and soul by our Lord Jesus Christ. God made our physical bodies for himself, and in that sense, our bodies are good. And listen, we also know that flesh bodies are good because our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in a body. He died in a body. He was resurrected in a body. In fact, that's the, exactly the point that he, Paul makes here in verse 14. Look, and God raised the Lord who will also raise us up by his power. Listen, the body is important to understanding what it means to be human. We're going to be resurrected with a body. Not as some kind of disembodied spirits that float up into glory somewhere. Our bodies are meant for Jesus. What does that mean? Our bodies are meant for Jesus. And when Jesus comes back the second time, our bodies will be resurrected like his by his own power. And this is where I feel like God's view of the body just goes to a whole nother level. Right? Right? Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now he uses this earlier in a few chapters ago talking about the whole church. He's going to talk about that further in chapter 12. 
But now he's talking about individuals, that your physical fleshly body is somehow a member of Christ, somehow united with Christ. Our fleshly bodies are somehow united. They have a union with Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, said this, the height of salvation is not justification or sanctification, but union with Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time at Sacred City talking about justification. And we're sinners, but we've been justified by a holy God through him pouring out his wrath on Jesus Christ. We spent a lot of time talking about sanctification, that God has pulled us out, put us in his treasure box, and he is making us holy. That is good, but that is not the chief end of our salvation. The chief end, and not even the chief end, but the chief beginning is union with Christ. That somehow God unites us to himself. That we're united in Christ. And all of our justification, all of our sanctification, all of our, all the Holy Spirit, everything that we've been given comes through the tunnel of union with Christ. Comes through the union that we have with Christ. So what does that mean? What's the implication of that? Look at verse 15. Since, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ He's talking about, shall I then take my members of my body, which are united to Christ, and then make them members of a prostitute? Never! Never! Now, I want you to see Paul's argument here before I get too excited. Paul is not a prude. Paul is not a pagan. Paul does not say sex is bad, avoid it. He does not say sex is God, worship it. He's saying two things. That's how I want to describe it today. He's saying two things. Sex is a road and sex is a window. Sex is a road and sex is a window. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 16 and 17. Or do you not know Okay, this is how he's, he's appealing to their thinking here. Do you not know that he who is joined or united or holds fast to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, I want to remind you, listen, when this was written, and I still think it is today, okay? But when this was written, this was a revolutionary understanding of sex. Absolutely revolutionary. And it still is today, when the two views, number one, sex is just an appetite that must be fulfilled to be ha- happy, right? Eat when you're hungry, right? Or the conservative, sex is gross, that's only necessary for procreation, Literally, there's early writings, and I didn't want to, I, I should have wrote it down, but I didn't think I was going to quote it, I didn't think I had time. But there's early writings from the philosophers in this, in this time that said you should have a, you should have a wife for um, procreating with, and then you should have a prostitute, male or female, for just doing the, doing the debased things that men want to do. Like, don't, don't do that with your wife, that would defile her. 
just have somebody on the side that you do those things with. Right? This isn't like, that's not a new, we just didn't create that in America. It's been going along for a long time. And that's from a, understand, a misunderstanding of what sex is for, a misunderstanding of what we are as embodied people. But let me show you how Paul says that the Christian understanding is actually revolutionary to both. Number one, sex as a road. Now, this is kind of hard to see here in English, but I, hopefully I can make it a little more obvious for us. When it says uh, in verse 15, do you not know, look, that your bodies, that word body is soma, okay? In the Greek, it's soma. It means your full embodiment. It means your personhood. It means, yes, your flesh, but also whatever else makes up your personality, your soul, your spirit, the whole personhood, head, heart, and hands. That's what soma means. Now, keep reading. Our bodies are members of Christ. So shall I then take the bodies of Christ and make them members of prostitutes? Never. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute, look, becomes one body, that's soma, one body with her. Look, now watch this. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now that word is sarks. It's not the same word as body. And, and what does that mean? This is, let me try to explain it like this. The Greek word for soma means the entirety of a person, right? It includes the soul, the personality, means more than just the body of flesh. And we can see it when we read it like this. If we thought, when it says the two, when you join your body to a prostitute, when you have sexual relations with somebody who's not your wife, you become one body with them, all right? Now, if it just meant physical union, sexual intercourse, then it would read like this. Do you not know that he who has sexual union with a prostitute has sexual union with a prostitute? Doesn't make sense, does it? Do you not know that he who has sexual union with a prostitute has sexual union with a prostitute? Now, we know that the word of God is, is profitable in every area, right? That's not what Paul is saying. That says nothing. He who is united is united. That's painfully obvious. Thank you, Paul. No, what Paul is saying is, listen, sex, listen to this, sex is like a road. It's a two-lane road of human personhood transportation where we give and receive. When we have sex with someone, we become one with that person in a completely unique way. It's a spiritual it's a personal personhood and physical union. I want you to hear that. It's spiritual, it's personal, and it's physical. It's the communication of my entire personhood. Everything that makes me me, soul, spirit, body, every part of me that makes me me, I'm communicating that to another. My personhood is being transported to another. It's a soul gift. Think of that. Sex is a soul gift. It's a complete self-disclosure. Everything that I am in my head, heart, and hands, and everything that makes me me, I'm giving to you. To quote Tim Keller, Paul says 
Sex was designed as a way to do radical self-donation. Sex was God's invented way for you to give yourself to someone else so deeply, listen, that it results in personal transformation and completion. Personal trans, so sex is a road, it's it's a two-lane road where my humanhood My personhood, what makes me me, is transferred to another, and her personhood is transferred to me. Having this type of relationship with my wife has changed me over the past decade. Part of her personhood has been given to me in such a way that I've been made more complete as a person. I'm more of a man today because of this. See, 10 years ago, I possessed no meekness. If you tested me for meekness or gentleness, you'd have to check the batteries on the machine because you got a flat line. This thing ain't working. Right? Zero. But my wife is very meek. She's very gentle. She's all that I am not and was not. And that is one of the things that attracted us to each other. And God has created... The sexual union in marriage in such a way that over the past 10 years of our marriage, part of her personhood has been communicated to me. And part of my personhood has been communicated to her. When I'm in a situation, now this is so cool. When I'm in a situation now, first off, if you would, I was a wrestler, if you didn't know. I fought in a cage once. I did all this stuff, right? If you confronted me in an aggressive manner, I had one response, right? And if it wasn't physically slamming you down, then it was verbally slamming you down. I will dominate you. You will not beat me, right? I had one response. I was very narrow. I had a very narrow, uh, I was very narrow in my response, right? I had one way I could respond, and that's the only way I knew to respond, and that's aggressively, okay? But now, after 10 years of marriage, And part of my wife's personhood literally being transferred to me, I now have three responses. (laughs) Okay? I still have my response, right? Where I'll find a weakness and exploit it and I'll slam you, right? I I still have that possibility. That's a good tool to use every now and then, right? You need a hammer in the toolbox, right? Now, if your only tool in the toolbox is a hammer, that's a problem. But a hammer is a good tool to use sometimes. So I have that. But secondly, I have my wife's response. I have the gentle, I know it. Like without even, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to like bring it up. Like I am in a situation and I know how my wife would respond to this situation. I know what gentleness looks like. I know what meekness looks like in this situation. I have a choice to respond. One, like me, like I've always known. Two, like my wife. Now, I also have a third response. I can combine the two, which is helpful, (laughs) right? I can some kind of, okay, I know she would respond there, but also my wife used to sin in a meek way. My wife used to sin in a gentle way, would never, would not confront sin, right? She wouldn't tell you if you've hurt her. She wouldn't tell that to you. She'd just be hurt. So I know how now to combine those two, to not be someone that gets walked over, but also not be somebody that walks over others and blows over them. 
So now, listen, the union with my wife, the sexual union with my wife, where it's a personhood, human personhood transportation, has actually made me a more complete human being. It's actually changed me. And people used to understand this. Men have always been wild, all right? ADD was not just invented, okay? Men have always been wild. We used to just send them outside and lock the door and tell them to go play until it, turns, until it gets dark. Then they come in and they're tired and they eat and you put them to bed, right? Men have always been like that. And it used to be, that there, there used to be this understanding that if you wanted to settle a man down, what'd you do? You got him married. You found him a really good girl and you got him married, all right? He's, <laughs> oh boy, right? That's how you break him. That's how the old stallion gets broke, right? Put a, put a woman in his life and she'll break him and she'll, now listen, there's something to that. There's something to that. This human personhood, transportation, this communication where a woman, who she is, is transferred to him and who he is is transferred to her. There's something to that. And that's one of the reasons we see as young men are more sexually promiscuous and young women are more sexually promiscuous, marriage gets further and further down the road. It's an option down the road. And most, many men don't even need it anymore. They can have sex whenever they want. They don't need what's marriage for. We don't even understand what it's for anymore. But look at this. This is why Paul, when he says this, sex is this way of communicating personhood. Then he says this. Christians flee from immorality. Flee from it. Run from immorality. Run from sex. Any type of sex outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Run from it. Why? Don't play with it. Drop everything and run because Paul says this. It's the only sin that is a sin against our own, listen, our own soma. A sin against our own bodies, not just our own flesh. Not sarks. Not flesh. Because listen, that doesn't even make sense unless you see that sex is a soma, personhood, transportation. Because we all know, obviously, suicide is a sin against our own body. If you're thinking sarks, if you're thinking flesh. As soon as suicide destroys the flesh, that's a sin against the body. Addiction destroys the flesh. Overeating, eating bad food, drinking too much is a sin against the flesh. He's not talking about a sin against the flesh. He's talking about a sin against the body. The embodied person, soul, spirit, everything together as one. So listen to this. Let me quote Tim Keller again. What he's saying is, when you have sex outside of marriage, you are abusing and you are dishonoring, and listen, you are actually destroying this incredible person-shaping commitment mechanism of deep soul nurture and personal transformation. What does that mean? That means when you give your body to someone without giving your whole self to them, you're destroying your ability to ever truly connect with another person and to ever stay committed to one person for a lifetime. 
When you're misusing sex, sex is meant to unite a person, soul, body, everything. When you're having sex with someone without that, trying to have it, without that soul connection, just as two bodies connect, you're actually destroying the mechanism that God built for monogamy, that God built for satisfaction, that God built for longevity. You're actually destroying yourself. Sex is a road where human personhood is transported between two people where they become so deeply united that they don't know where one ends and the other begins. That's why he says they're one. Flesh, one body, one soul. But that's not all. I think that alone, I would love to spend the whole day talking about that. But that's not all. I think that view alone is spectacular enough that just blows the prude and pagan's view of sex out of the water. But to Paul, it takes us even higher. Paul says that sex is a road, but it's also a window. Sex is a window. And I'm going to say it's a window. It's a gospel window. It's a window that you come up to and you look through it and you see something even better. What does that mean? This is what it says. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul is saying that sex points us to our true and ultimate union, our union with Christ. Sex is a picture of our union with Christ. I'm going to give you some, I'm going to bring you up to speed really fast here. In Romans 7, we're told that God relates to us the way a husband relates to a wife says the same thing in Ephesians 5. It says that sex between a husband and a wife and the unity and the fruit that is produced is actually a picture of God's relationship with us. If you remember, if you can go back and listen to our sermons from Ephesians 5, Paul, the word Paul uses, he says, marriage is a mystery that is profound that points to Christ's relationship with the church. This is what that word, profound, means mega. He says, marriage is a mega mystery. It's a mega mystery that points to our union with Christ. In the Old Testament, God is constantly saying, I'm the husband and Israel is my bride. In the New Testament, Christ is called the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Let me tell you what this means. The Bible says sex is a window to see something even better. Sex is a window that you look through to see something even better. This actually frees us from seeing sex as either dirty or seeing sex as either God. Listen, what does that mean? What does that mean? Sex is a picture. Sex is a window. This is going to freak you out a little bit, but it's okay. It's biblical. In the resurrection... In heaven, we will be united wholly with our true lover, Jesus Christ. And we will experience a newfound unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ that will be better than any sexual experience anyone has ever had. We will all be truly known, all the way down to the core of who we are. People will get us for the first time. She gets me, right? They'll all get us. Christ will, Christ already does get us, but we'll get him. 
We'll be united with Christ and united with brothers and sisters in a way that we've never known. We'll be truly known and truly loved all the way down to the core of us. Paul's saying some of that rapture, that feeling, (laughs) I don't want to say it, that you experience in sexual union, that's just a picture to what you're going to feel in heaven. That's a, it's like this. Sex is a window we're meant to see through to see the gospel. But what we do is we go to the window and we stare at the window. That's not the point. Sex will never satisfy you in itself. Sex is another way that God has given us to display the gospel. Who goes to a window and just... stares at the window? The purpose of a window is to see through it to something better. Correct? Sex is a window that we look through to see our union with Christ. What's going to happen, what's already happened in some form and what's going to be completed in the new heavens and the new earth. Now listen to this. August, St. Augustine, a long time ago, said that anyone who knocks on the door of a brothel, we know what a brothel is, anyone who goes looking for sex with somebody who's not their wife or husband is actually looking for God. See, Augustine's saying, men that go to the brothel go to the window and they look at the window. But what they don't realize is what they want is actually outside the window. Look through the window. Sex will never satisfy you. You're always going to want more or different or whatever. And it's interesting in John chapter 4, Jesus shows up at this well and he says, I'm thirsty and there's this woman who's a Samaritan that Jews don't talk to, right? They're unclean. And he says, it's kind of offensive, but he says, woman, I need a drink. I say the same thing all the time. Woman, I need a drink. And he says, who are you? Whoa, why would you speak to me? I can't believe, I can't believe you'd speak to me. And he says, if you knew who was speaking to me, you would actually ask me for a drink because I can give you a living water that will quench your thirst. Okay, now listen. Do we have a craving for food? Yes. Do we have a craving for water? Absolutely. He's saying, I will meet all your cravings. I will fulfill all your cravings. If you ask me, I'll give you living water. And what does Jesus do? Well, she goes, living water? Never have to come here again? Quench my cravings? Sign me up. I want it. And what does Jesus say? He says, hey, go get your husband. What's my husband got to do with this thing? What do you mean get my husband? I'm not married. Yeah, you're not married. You've been married five times. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. You're in a sexual union now with someone other than, what's he saying? Listen, she thinks she's thirsty and water will satisfy, but in her guts, in her soul, soul, in the depth of her personhood, she's been thirsty for something else and trying to satisfy her thirst with sex with men. This guy didn't work. That guy didn't work. That guy didn't work. That guy didn't work. 
well, now I'm tired of getting married. Let's just try this thing out for a while. Just move in. I'll move in. Right? Jesus goes sexual on her. He takes the conversation to her sex life. You're thirsty? You want water that will satisfy your soul? How's your sex life? See, when our sex life is broken, it breaks a part of us. It breaks a part of our human personhood. And she falls at his feet, right? You're a prophet. And he says, I can give you living water that will always satisfy. Sex won't satisfy. It's the window, but there's something outside the window that will satisfy your soul. And it's your creator, God, who built you like a toy box that he can climb into. That's what will satisfy you. God is what, and in heaven, that's what it is. We're full of God. We're united to him. It's not just a sign. It's not just a, you know, right now we're united with God in Christ, but we have sin still remaining. We forget that and we struggle with that, but in heaven, all sin will be removed and it'll just be us and our Savior and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul's saying, sex is a window that you look through to see what's coming down the road. You say, so if sex is a window that I look through and see the gospel, what is the gospel? Simply this, as I close. Paul says right here in the last verse, we have been bought with a price. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us by God. He created it to be united to him by faith God built us to dwell in us, but we, listen, but we have joined ourselves to other things and God will not share us with other lovers. We've become enslaved to our own passions. Where we should have given ourselves totally to God, we have prostituted ourselves to all manner of things. We abuse our bodies. We eat too much. We drink too much. We have immoral sexual relationships. We'd rather have rules than, than a relationship with God. We have defiled God's temple. The toy box is a mess. But Jesus Christ came as the perfect Son of God, and he lived a perfect life in his body, never defiling it. He was the spotless temple where God's spirit was always pleased to dwell. But thankfully, Jesus didn't leave us in the mess that we have all made of our own bodies. Jesus allowed men to abuse his body. He allowed men to destroy his body so that our bodies could be cleansed. In fact, verse 20 says that on the cross, Jesus actually paid for our broken and dirty bodies with his own perfect and spotless body. Jesus paid the price to redeem our bodies by giving up his own to death. But because Jesus is and was God and was sinless in himself, Jesus was resurrected and God gave him a new body. And if we live by faith in what he has done for us, he will give us a new body as well. A perfect, spotless, clean body. A redeemed and renewed body. So sex is a window. Through it we see that the way a man and a woman are made uniquely one is actually a picture for the deep, deep life-changing unity that we will all have with our creator 
because of the work of Jesus. That desire that you, you look and you think a man will make you feel whole. A man is what you need or a woman is what you need or another sexual escapade is what you need. No, look through that. What you actually need is to be deeply united with your creator. You need to drink deeply of his spiritual water. That's where your soul will be satisfied. And it's no less than that that our Savior offers us this morning at the Lord's table. In the Lord's Supper, we take this meal into ourselves. It's a grace meal. It's a gospel meal. We take it into ourself and it becomes a part of us. We are united to this meal. We are united to one another in this meal. That Christ comes into us and he goes out into the world with us. One body, one baptism, one spirit, one Savior, Jesus Christ, broken for our sins. Father, I pray this morning that we wouldn't walk to the window of sex and just stare at it and ogle at it and just worship the window. We would look through the window and see you, the creator of it behind it, you, the lover of our soul behind it, you, the one who wants to inhabit our bodies, you, the one who wants to give us new bodies, you, the one, the God of the universe that wants to be united with dirt. Are you kidding me? Father God, let us see you that's great and gracious. The prudish understanding doesn't, isn't big enough. The pagan understanding isn't big enough. Only the gospel understanding captures our heart, captures our present, and gives us hope for the future. Father, there's many in this room who have misused their body, who have practiced sexual immorality and defiled their body sexually in moral ways and also in, in overeating, gluttonous ways and all kind of different ways. We've defiled the temple. Father, would you cleanse it for us? And would we see that your cleansing work that's been done through Jesus on the cross, now we can say never again now we can flee sexual morality because what you've done for us, we can now fight our sin. We can now run from it if we have to. We can now draw a line in the sand and say, never. I am a member of the body of Christ. I'll never unite myself in that way again. Capture us, capture our vision and be worshiped as the God of all glory that you are. Father, I pray as we come to the table this morning that those who are in unrepentant sin would turn and repent. If they've sinned against someone in the body, they would go to that person and they would, they would not come to the table without repenting and owning their sin and confessing their sin to that person. Father, for, for sinners who come repentant, may we take in your body and drink your blood and be, and as a, this is a sign that by faith, we are made one with you and one with each other. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.